If you have a Bible or New Testament with you, would you take it out and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, please? Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 19 through 22 as our first passage tonight. Our congregational focus for this year is better together, and that we are better because God has put us together as His people, as His church. And there are all sorts of metaphors used for the people of God um, in the New Testament, in the church. Uh, the metaphor of a marriage is used, uh, a nation or, or a kingdom where we're citizens in that kingdom, a family where we are brothers and sisters, a, a body where we're each a different member or part of the body, a priesthood, and more. But one of the common images or metaphors that is used is that of a temple. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we see that image used. Now therefore you, that is you Gentiles specifically, but you Christians are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And this is an image that Paul used pretty extensively in his writings in a number of different places. And this would have held great significance to the Gentiles who were there in Ephesus. Ephesus was known for its temple, not a temple to God, of course, but a temple to Diana of the Ephesians. It was famous for that. And by way of contrast, here is this pagan, earthly, fleshly temple, but you're being built up into a greater temple, a better temple a spiritual house for God and the Spirit, the dwelling place of God. And that would have been powerful for them, no doubt. But if you were a Jew and you hear this image of a temple, you're not going to think of the temple to Diana or Zeus or Apollo. You're going to think about the temple of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And so I want us to turn to a lesser used passage, and that's 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. We're going to spend some time there, but let me tell you what I want to focus on, and then we'll come back to that text. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, it's the same image, but I think if we think about this in terms of the temple in Jerusalem, maybe there are a few points that we might take from it. I've preached many times out of Ephesians 2, but I've never preached a sermon about us as the temple of God out of this text in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is written more specifically, though not exclusively, to Jewish Christians. And while there would have been Jews in Ephesus, primarily that church was made up of Gentiles. And so Peter's image, unlike Paul's, probably focuses more on this idea of the temple of God in Jerusalem. In the first century, of course, it was Herod's temple that was under consideration. This is one of the greatest building projects of the ancient world. In Jerusalem today, they have this large-scale model of, of this grandiose temple that Herod built. It took decades for him to complete and, and was really one of the wonders of the ancient world. And when they thought about this temple, they were awfully proud of it. 
Um, as Jews, you found your identity there in this temple. And you look to this temple as saying, look, look at our connection to God. And, and though it wasn't the temple built by Solomon, and to a lesser extent it was a remodeling of that temple that they built after the return from captivity, even though they didn't like Herod, they loved Herod's temple. And we see this, I think, to a certain degree in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to turn over there, Matthew chapter 24. This is also found in Luke's account, in Luke's gospel. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. Now they were showing Him because they thought it was so impressive. They said, look at this, Jesus. Look at this temple to God that has been built. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one stone shall be left upon another is what Jesus prophesies here. And that's exactly what happened. Down to the very foundation in 70 AD, the Romans came in. And if you look at this model of the temple, all of this outer wall here, all of this building, Solomon's porch, and all of these outer porticos, what the Romans did after taking Jerusalem to give the Jews a lesson to try and destroy their national identity, almost as great as the project to build the temple, an incredible show of manpower, they pushed all of these stones off of the temple mount where there was nothing but the foundation left. And of the temple itself, not one stone was left upon another. These were beautiful and massive stones, huge stones. So the foundation underneath of the actual temple mount itself is still there today, and you can see that. This is my dad and I in Israel a few years ago. You see how massive these stones are? Um, about seven foot tall down on the bottom, and maybe they get a little smaller as you grow up, go up. And indeed, what we see is they were cast down. In fact, these stones are so massive that piles of stones, and of course they have religious significance to a lot of people, piles of these stones remain today that were actually pushed off of the Temple Mount. There is an inscription on one of these stones that is a cornerstone up at the top that actually says this was the place where the the trumpet was blown to announce the Sabbath day and various feasts and so forth. So these are piles of the actual stones from Herod's temple in the first century. Every stone of the temple complex included a beautiful picture frame. So let's see how well you can see that. See this edge that runs right, right there? Every single one of these has this picture frame that runs around the edge just as a way of beautification, and you see how perfectly these stones fit together. The craftsmanship is superior. Um, even 2,000 years later, you see that. Um, even in just the foundation that is left, you see this craftsmanship. And so this temple and these stones would have been what they thought about. And at the time Peter was writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, this temple had not yet been destroyed. And so they would have called to mind this beautiful temple with these stones. So let's look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 now. 
And let's see what we can learn from this text. Um, I'm going to read from the New King James, and then I'm going to put up the English Standard Version on the screen behind me, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you why here in just a little bit. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being built up as a temple, a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And he begins by saying, you yourselves, New King James says, you also. And that's a comparison to what we see with Jesus in verse 4. So read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 with me. Coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but, but chosen by God and precious. Jesus is a living stone, and now we too are supposed to be living stones. And that image of Jesus as a stone is rich with prophetic meaning. If we keep reading down in verse 6, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. That's a quotation from Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So he quotes from Isaiah 26 and verse 16 first and Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14 last. In between is a quotation from Psalm 118. I want us to turn there, if you would. Mark your spot in 1 Peter 2. And turn back, please, uh, to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. We'll read uh, a little further than what Peter quotes. So we'll start in verse 22. Psalm 118 and verse 22. Let's start in verse 21. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now, that's true for the psalmist on this occasion, but it's true of us also, as he's going to say in verses 22 through 24. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. God chose to send His Son to be rejected by men, become the chief cornerstone of the church. And this should be marvelous in our eyes. It's the Lord's doing. It was His will. And that last phrase there, this is the day that the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it, would apply to any day. But the verse specifically is talking about Christ's crucifixion. We can rejoice today and every day because, according to God's plan, Jesus died for our sins. His suffering led to His glory, a common theme in 1 Peter. As a living stone, He was rejected by men, but precious to God. So then Peter says, you yourselves like living stones. And if we're going to understand that correctly, we have to put it in the context of Jesus as this living stone who was rejected and then was glorified through that rejection. 
If we want to be living stones, we should not expect anything less of ourselves than what happened with Jesus and His suffering that led to His glorification. So, we we will be rejected by men also. You yourselves like living stones, he says. Stones are not alive, of course. um, But maybe that's part of the point that's being made here by Peter. We were... There's lots of phrases we use for something being dead, right? Dead as a doorknob. You are uh, dead as a door rail, some people say. My granddad says that. I'm not sure if the knob or the rail is less alive than the other. But that idea is you're dead as some inanimate object. Well, we could say you're as dead as a stone, right? But God, though we were dead to that degree, can and did make us alive. Living stones emphasizes his creative power to make alive. Even from something as dead as a stone, God can make us alive, physically and spiritually. I think John the Baptist hinted at this in Matthew chapter 3. As he's beginning his ministry to introduce the way of Christ, in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, starting... In verse 5, Matthew 3 and verse 5, John the Baptist, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And there's a sense in which that's exactly what God did, isn't it? We were, Paul says in Ephesians, without God and without hope in this world. We were dead spiritually. At the beginning of chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were as dead as stones, and we had no inheritance in Abraham because we were Gentiles. We were without God in this world. And yet God, in His power, raised us up to become heirs, to become children of Abraham. Our life is found in Jesus Christ. Though we were dead, now we are living stones. But maybe there's more to that idea of a living stone that we can learn from the stones of the temple itself. One of the aspects of the temple project, of which I was unaware until I went to Israel, was the type of stone that was used in the construction of Herod's temple. The temple was made from a specific type of local Jerusalem limestone, and it's called the royal stone, and it has some pretty interesting qualities to it. This stone was particularly attractive to Herod, who was a great builder. He didn't just build the temple, he built a lot of other things. Because in its natural state, it's a soft stone. It's very easy to cut, very easy to craft and quarry. And so it was easier for for his builders to, to bring this stone, to cut this stone, and to put it into the right position where it might be built into something else. You saw how those stones fit together so perfectly? Well, because this stone is so soft, that was possible. Um, 
certainly there should be application made to us as Christians, that we should be malleable to God and how He wants to build us and make us into the image. Uh, We should be chiseled into the image that He desires for us to be. But this stone doesn't stay soft. And this is somewhat unique among stones. What's amazing is once this soft stone is exposed to the air and the elements, it hardens and it strengthens. And after a few years, it becomes one of the strongest stones available to ancient builders. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be with us as well? As living stones, we are molded and placed by God where He would have us to be. And rather than being worn by trials, exposure to trials, to the elements, only strengthens our, us individually and as a temple of God. Uh, the, the ancient quote is, the same fire that melts wax hardens clay, or the same fire that melts the butter hardens the egg. Whatever that means. I've given you two off-the-wall Uh, quotes tonight it is a totally different reaction to the same experience and so what is it for us what is the godly reaction of living stones our heart should be soft when God comes to us and he molds us and makes us into what he would have us to be and as we grow in our faith we become harder and harder we do not harden our hearts of course But we do, as we grow in our faith and knowledge, harden our resolve. Our faith should be strengthened. Our commitment should be solidified. And as we go through trials, that's what should happen to us. Instead of chipping away at us, the exposure to these trials should make us firmer in our faith and make us fit together better as the people and spiritual house of God. Notice some examples from each chapter in 1 Peter that talks about this idea of our trials and the strengthening that should come about because of those trials. First, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We'll just go through the book. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. You ever been through a trial? Maybe you're going through one now. As a living stone, what should be your reaction? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, and isn't that interesting that that's the same word that's used to describe Jesus as a living stone, he's precious, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Turn now to chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Chapter 2, starting in verse 19. For this is commendable, Peter says, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. You're a Christian and you suffer because of it. For what credit is it if, when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? When you do good and suffer and you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps, who committed no sin, 
nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, he says. And so we imitate Jesus in this suffering that ultimately leads to glory. Turn to chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, obviously in chapter 2 he said sometimes you're going to suffer for those things, but that's generally not the case. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death, death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then if we drop down to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Be like Christ. He's a living stone, you're a living stone. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Drop down to verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. And then one final uh, example, chapter 5 and verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. When I first heard this concept of these stones and how they were soft and then they become hard when exposed to the elements, uh, when I first heard that, I sounded like something that they would make up for tourists. Turns out that's really true of the stones. And then when you read through 1 Peter and the comparison that he makes to Jesus' suffering and how that led to the glory that was revealed in him and our sufferings as an imitation of him which ultimately lead to our glory, that it might perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us, I thought to myself, maybe there is something to it. 
He's a living stone. He endured suffering and ultimately accomplished God's purposes in it. You are living stones. And you've come to God with humble and soft hearts. And through the trials of suffering, you can be strengthened and perfected, completed, and settled. Settled in your part as the spiritual house of God. Perhaps you're going through a period of trial right now. The devil wants the elements to soften and weaken your resolve. But God wants you to be able to use this trial to grow closer to Him. And He gives us an opportunity in the midst of these things to do right, to rely on Him, and thus to grow and ultimately receive our reward. that tough in the moment? Sometimes unbelievably so. And yet we can look to Christ and His example as a reminder of us as to what this is is supposed to look like. You're living stones. And that is a great compliment that is given to you by God. You are precious in His sight just as Christ is. And through the things that we suffer, we can bring glory to Him in ways that we couldn't if life was all peaches and cream. So you, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. Not that we were built, or even are built, as some of the translations say, but I like the English Standard Version, you are being built up. This is an ongoing process. And isn't that reassuring to you? Uh, How many times have I fallen short in the midst of these trials? How many times have I allowed those things to undermine my faith instead of build me up? And yet God is still there providing me with the opportunities to grow and be strengthened in my faith. I don't have to be a finished product yet. Even the church. Even the church isn't a finished product in some ways. Stones. Stones are still being quarried and added to this spiritual house. And we are being built upon the stones that were below us and before us. And if the world continues, other stones will be added on top of us. And furthermore, we are in that process of hardening and strengthening and unification among ourselves. You're still there in 1 Peter. Go back to chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. This is what he said just before this talk of living stones and the spiritual house. A gospel is preached to us. Good news by the Word of God. And it's by that Word ultimately that we can live forever. Therefore, he says in verse 1, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Therefore, he says, if you have been born again by obedience to the Word of God, you should do these things. You should lay aside all of those things that were common in your former life, And you should desire the pure milk of God's Word that you might grow by it. If if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you've tasted His grace and you say to yourself, I want some more of that. Then God can build you up and will build you up. Why should I desire to read my Bible like a baby desires milk? Because I have tasted the graciousness of the Lord. And I want to grow. I want Him to build me up. And that's exactly what He can do. 
to build us up as a spiritual house. We should remember in all of this talk of being a living stone that you are not a solitary stone facing the storms of life alone, but you are part of a great temple, a spiritual house of God. And maybe that temple is far bigger than what we sometimes imagine. When I became a Christian, when I became a living stone, the Lord added me to a group of people that includes Peter who wrote these words, and Paul, and Dorcas, and Mary, and Martha, and Barnabas, and Stephen, and Lydia, and Aquila, and Priscilla. All of those people from the New Testament that we read about who were faithful Christians, they were living stones. It includes the faithful in Christ who have passed on in more recent times that we knew and loved, that we looked up to, that were mentors to us, and spiritual fathers and mothers to us, or maybe physical fathers and mothers along with that spiritual influence that they had. You and me and others locally who are still uh, Christians today, and all those around the world who serve God in just this way. And beyond that, not just reaching back to the beginning of this great building project, but reaching forward, it will include all those who come to Christ from this day forward. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And the Lord has not stopped adding to His church as those come to Him to seek that salvation. I've had the the great privilege to see some of you, even in this room, added to that building project. I want us to look at, at one more passage as we continue reading. In verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he describes us not just as living stones in a spiritual house, but he uses some of those other metaphors that we talked about earlier. But you, you Christians, you are a chosen generation. Uh, a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests, maybe your translation says. You're a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Look around you. What an eclectic group of characters we are. And we were once not a people. But now we together, and all those like us, we are now the people of God. And so if you're facing something in your life, you know what I humbly ask of you? Allow us to help you and stand with you in the face of your trial. Draw us in with you in what you face. Because we truly are better together. That's the way God designed it. For us to be built up as this spiritual house for Him. And obviously you don't need to necessarily come forward in order to make that happen. But you do need to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ for this spiritual help. Because we support one another as God has called us to. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
through Jesus Christ. If you're not yet a Christian tonight, well, you can be part of this building project. Won't you come to Jesus in humble submission and put Him on in baptism? And if you're already a Christian, I'm a stone and you're a stone. Living because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that should keep us from helping one another to make it to heaven. We can help you even tonight. Won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing?